I was on such a high. I um, I actually said once once my second was out, I said, "Oh, that was it. That was way easier." This is Jenna. Uh, hi, I'm Jenna. So I'm a mother of three kids. My eldest has just gone four and started kindy this year. Her name's Briar. My second um, is Reef, and he will be three in June. And then my littlest is Jax, and he's just turned one. Jenna planned to have a drug-free birth for her first child, Briar, but she was four days overdue and her doctor was about to head off on holidays, so she chose to be induced. Nothing much happened after she was induced, so the doctors gave her Sentosin, which is a drug used to speed up labour. A few hours later, she had an epidural, and not long after that, Briar was born. So it was pretty straightforward. Um, there were no complications, but it was, you know, a lot more medical, I guess, than what I wanted. Um, after my first, I was, you know, super happy to have my baby, and it, but it was really just, I'm so glad that's over. That was just awful. And there was also a slight um, disappointment in myself that I couldn't do it, you know, completely naturally. Compared that experience to that of her second child, Reef, the difference... A midwife. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Ellen Liebeter. This Thursday is the International Day of the Midwife, and to celebrate, we're exploring the work of midwives over the next half hour. You'll hear from three midwives working in three very different places. But we're going to hear a bit more from Jenna first about why her midwife was important to her. Between baby number one and two, Jenna became a doula. That's a person who offers non-medical support to a woman during birth. During her training, Jenna built a greater understanding of pregnancy and labour and decided her second birth was going to be different. She enrolled in a midwifery-led group practice in her hometown of Bunbury, which is about two hours south of Perth in Western Australia. She was assigned a midwife called Susan, who did all her antenatal appointments and was there when Jenna gave birth in hospital. Yeah, we, we gained a lot of trust. Um, it was really personal. And, yeah, I love her. It was, by the end, she knew exactly what I wanted to achieve in this birth. She knew how to support me. She knew she'd met my husband. So it wasn't when I went into labour, there was no, who am I going to get when I walk into the hospital or you know, quickly try and learn me. Let's try and quickly gain a report. Here's my birth plan. This is what I want to try and achieve. She already knew all of that. Um, I felt really safe going into my labour, knowing that she was going to be there. And this is all part of the role of the midwife. Caroline Homer is a professor of midwifery in the UTS Faculty of Health. She says that midwives are especially important in providing continuity of care. That is, making sure the same person is there for your antenatal appointments, birth and the weeks following your birth. It's something Caroline would like to see for all women across Australia. There are lots of divides in countries like Australia with access to midwives. So while we know that every woman has a midwife with her at her birth, 
What we would like is that every woman knows the midwife with her at her birth so that they don't have strangers. So there is now good research that midwifery continuity of care, knowing the midwife who is with you at your birth, will make a difference to your outcomes, regardless of whether you have risk factors or not. Jenna says knowing her midwife was something that was important to her, and it added to the whole birth experience. It just took away that scariness of not knowing, yeah, am I going to get a good midwife? <laughs> you know, you know, that's always sometimes what people think. I hope they're nice. Um, I wonder who it's going to be. It just took away that whole extra fear that might be there. So you could really just focus on, on your labour without wondering who's going to get there and, and having to establish that relationship and, and trust them. Just Yeah, it just makes the transition so much smoother and more comfortable and more trustworthy and everything. After all, birth is a very vulnerable time for women. Caroline Homer again. Giving birth is a very vulnerable moment for women. They're entering into an uncertain experience. You never know how your labour's going to go at the beginning. Um, You're very exposed, and uh, I don't mean that only in terms of being naked, but many women are naked, and and it is a very vulnerable time. You're kind of exposing your soul. So to have strangers with you at that really vulnerable time is very hard. We know that if you know the midwife, you trust her or him. They want to know who's going to be in the room when they have this very precious moment. You only give birth to each baby once. You only get to do it once. You want to do it the best you can. And for baby number three, Jenna had Susan as her midwife again. But this time, she chose a home birth. So, yeah, of course... It was great because we'd already had such a great rapport and um, kept in contact between babies. And so, yeah, it was just kicking off like last time and even better planning a home birth. So it was it was really great as well. Jenna's story is remarkably similar to many Australian women, be that they give birth with a doctor or a midwife in hospital or at home. Whatever the choice a woman makes, the key advantage is that we have someone there to guide a woman through birth, but also to help when something goes wrong. In many parts of the world, this is a luxury. While home birth may be a lovely choice for women in Australia, In Afghanistan, it's basically your only option. The culture is to deliver at home and not go to the doctor, especially with the Taliban rules at that time. Women have to stay at home because if they go out, either they will kill them or torturing them. The only choice was to stay at home. And if you're lucky, you have another woman with you, but it's highly unlikely that they're going to be a skilled birth attendant. The only person might be a family member, mother-in-law or mother or sister-in-law to help them with the birth. And they are not trained. And in most cases they are dying because they don't have access to a skilled birth attendant. If something does go wrong or you do want help, it's a couple of days' walk to the nearest hospital. If women want help of a midwife, they literally cannot find that midwife easily. Like They have to walk miles and 
three days or four days, and there is no road also, proper road to drive. There is no car. They have to go by donkey. That is, if there is any point at all in going to the hospital. Most are ill-equipped to help anyone, let alone a pregnant woman. And when they reach the health facility, there is no health provider there. And there is, if there is provider, there is no equipment there to help. If there is equipment, there is no medicine there. What Sabra is describing is Afghanistan circa 2003, although it's questionable how different it is today. Sabra is a midwife currently working in the UTS Faculty of Health. She previously worked in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban, helping to educate midwives across the country. Sabra and her family fled Afghanistan in the 1980s during the Soviet war. They settled in Iran, which is where Sabra was educated. During Russian invasion, I was a kid, and we migrated to Iran, and then there I pursued my education from, from primary to Bachelor of Midwifery. And then after my Bachelor of Midwifery, I returned to Afghanistan. It was almost the same time as it was announced that Taliban are gone and they collapsed, and that's why we decided to return to the country. Sabra and her family returned to Afghanistan in 2002. When we returned, for me, coming from stable country, seeing the scene was like a very traumatic scene. Every household was collapsed by bombing, and there was no house, literally there was no proper house around the city when you walk. There was no running water, there was no proper hospital setting which you can go to doctor. And I came to our house, which was completely destroyed during, during war, and... There was just one room which my father prepared that when we arrived, stay in that room. No running water, no bathroom, nothing. And then that was a shocking, shocking <laughs> scene for me, like to see such an environment and such a situation in my country. It was so shocking. Sabra went back to Iran. I came and I was in shock and I said to my dad that I'm, I'm going back to Iran. And then they took me back, but after a few months, I felt so guilty that left everything behind because I cannot face those challenges. But Sabra's guilt got the better of her. She returned to Afghanistan for good. And then I decided this time to submit all my identity documents to the government of Iran that I cannot return again. I, I made a situation that my future is in my country, <laughs> nowhere else, and I have to go there and help my people but that's that's an amazing sacrifice because like you said Afghanistan was such a it is like, like that's such a difficult decision to make it was difficult but when you have that passion inside your in your heart which was helping my people Afghanistan needed Sabra. In 2003, Afghanistan had one of the worst maternal and infant outcomes in the world, within the top three, depending on what statistics you look at. In addition, only 14% of births had a skilled attendant there. Sabra says in a population of 23 million, they had about 450 trained midwives in 2002. Other statistics suggest there are about seven doctors, nurses and midwives per 10,000 people. 
That's roughly one health professional looking after 1,400 people. Sabra was part of a US-funded project that educated midwives across Afghanistan, giving them the skills they needed to return to their village and help women give birth. The problem was, immediately after the Taliban, they couldn't find women who could read or write. In whole village, when we were going around, we couldn't find even one woman with basic education to recruit as a midwife in their school. So they set up schools for the girls, closer to home, to teach them basic reading and writing skills, as well as midwifery. And then these girls were not ready to go to Kabul or somewhere far to be educated. Then we have to establish schools in each provinces. We established 32 schools almost. We have 34 provinces in Afghanistan. You can imagine we established almost every province one school that these girls can come and receive their trainings. They increased the midwifery workforce from 450 to 4,000. We started with 450, as I told you, around 450. But by the time I left the country in 2013, it was more than 4,000 midwives around the country. And deployment rate was so high, over 90%. Like We have a bit of dropout due to bad security, and that's why most those midwives who leave the profession because of the insecurity and... They are not safe. That's why they, they leave the profession. It's well established that educating and investing in women and girls has a powerful impact on society. Not only do these women go on to contribute to that nation's economy, they are also better at managing their families and their own health. In Afghanistan, educating women taught them to deliver babies. But it taught them a lot more than that as well. These midwives, like, we train them as midwives, but... Actually, we empower them to be an agent of change in their society. They are a leader. They are, they are working like a, as a role model in their societies. Sabra says she has watched these midwives go on to do things like create a women's health council, promoting things like family planning, and even drive cars, a big taboo for women in Afghanistan. She learned to drive because she wants to transfer women to higher level of health facilities, like from village going to the hospital in the city. And she spent six months of her salary to, to save money to buy that car. And then her brother taught her how to drive. And it was amazing to me. These are real uh, demonstration of women empowerment. We just not give them skill to go and deliver the baby. We give them the skill to lead the change in their societies. And for me, that's not a small or simple achievement. We sacrificed for, to make that change happen in our countries. Unfortunately, there is still a long way to go for healthcare in Afghanistan. When Sabra left in 2013, half of the midwifery schools had closed because of a lack of funding. When the military leaves, the money goes with them. Sabra says it's what happens when politics is mixed with humanitarian activities. It's still, I'm not regretted of, this, of the decision which I made. And Deep inside my heart, I'm so satisfied with the things which I've done in the last 10 or 12 years which I've been in Afghanistan. 
and I'm not regretted of what I'm doing it, but it was a difficult decision to make. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. It's an unfortunate reality of life that when it comes to conflict, women are the ones who are forgotten. There is some research which suggests that there are more female lives lost as a result of things like violence against women and maternal mortality than were lost in all the wars of the 20th century. For Michaela, a midwife who has worked on the front line of many humanitarian crises, it is an unfortunate fact that comes with the job. So hi, my name is Michaela. I am a midwife and I'm currently based in Germany, but I've been working in many other places like Thailand. I worked in a refugee camp and in Myanmar I worked um, with internally displaced displaced people, the Rohingyas. Then I worked in Bangladesh and um, in the last year I worked a lot in the West African countries um, due to the Ebola response. Michaela's work in a refugee camp on the Thailand-Myanmar border involved recruiting women from the camp to be trained as auxiliary midwives. There were two camps, with about 15 to 20,000 people in each. Medical facilities were few and far between, and people were stuck in those camps for decades. In that time, there was a military junta in Myanmar, and the Karen people, they fought against the Myanmar government. And so basically their villages got mined and they couldn't return. And the, the Thai government didn't accept them as, as refugees. So they could not also proceed to get education in Thailand and so on. So they were basically stuck in, the, in between these two countries for decades. So training women to be birth attendants isn't just a Band-Aid solution. It's a long-term one. And this is exactly what Michaela did. The training was basic by international standards. And the women were only auxiliary midwives. If the birth was anything but normal, the woman had to be transferred to a local hospital. We um, recruited the refugee, from the refugee population, mainly women um, who were interested to work as kind of auxiliary midwives. They, they received the training. Yeah, it was basically very basic, so they could only assist normal birth, but um, if a complication arose, we had to refer women. The Ebola crisis is another example where pregnant women had the potential to be forgotten, especially considering Ebola is a blood-borne disease, and there is no shortage of blood during pregnancy. The healthcare system collapsed in all three countries, basically, and um, all the attention was um, on the reduction or the fight against Ebola. And in the meantime, you know, because the health facilities closed and the health workers were afraid or died or whatever, there was nobody anymore to take care of pregnant women or women during labor. And so women died. Yeah, women died because they hemorrhaged or they died. Basically, they died because there was no system in place. Yeah, no, no hospitals, no midwives. In 2014, the world was rocked by the rapid spread of Ebola across Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia in West Africa. Michaela says she was part of a team that made sure pregnant women were still given priority. Through UN, uh, supported the government to set up midwife-led units. So kind of a a system that um, 
would allow the midwife um, herself to be protected, but also the woman, because a lot of women actually didn't go to the facilities anymore because they were afraid to get infected. Because all they knew is once you are in this facility, you, you have this disease. So a lot of people also avoided um, the, um, to go to the facilities. So we also established a component in all of this, um, like a community component, where people were encouraged to go back to the, to the facilities where the midwives were. For Michaela, the attraction to midwifery stems from her interest in anthropology. Um, I, I don't know, I studied anthropology before I became a midwife. So my, my desire was always to get in contact with different cultures. And I think as a midwife, um, you, you get very close to people. You can, I think there's not many other professions in the world where you can get as close as this. And um, I think with this profession being a midwife, it was easy for me to go out and get in touch with other people. Back on home ground, Charisse wanted to be a midwife from a young age. I probably decided that I wanted to be a midwife when I was in year 10. I think I was sort of going in that direction of working in health. Someone wanted to be me to be a doctor, mum wanted me to be a nurse. And I heard about midwifery in year 10 through a visiting university. And then it sort of stuck with me all the way through. Charisse is a midwife in the Red Centre, otherwise known as Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. Hello, my name's Charisse Buzzacott. I'm an Aboriginal registered midwife from Alice Springs. I'm an Arundel woman. Charisse is in her third year as a midwife and she works at a hospital in Alice. The majority of the women she sees are Aboriginal. Majority of women that we look after in Alice Springs are Aboriginal women, um, women from remote communities, um, so lots of transient women, so women that are moving a lot of the time. It's very hard to get them to come in for visits because they're moving quite a lot with their families and we tend to get them sort of at the late stage of pregnancy. They come into the hospital and they have their babies and they have their babies and then they go back home and then we probably see them again in the next pregnancy. In Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have a disproportionately high level of maternal and infant deaths compared to non-Indigenous women. Cherie says it's a combination of factors, such as remoteness, but also the woman putting family before herself. My feelings are, and from what I've heard from other, from elderly women, the grandmothers, they say that, you know, a woman who's like, has a family, the family comes first, you know, the husband comes first. And they tend not to see the pregnancy, like they tend not to see the baby. Um, they said it's a part of them, basically, and they know that it's a natural, normal thing that happens. So they're just thinking, you know, I'll, ha- I'll have a baby, I'll go into labour, I'll have the baby, and then I'll go back to my normal life. So they're seeing it more as sort of a normal, natural thing, which it is, which is really great. Um, but then we do have, you know, l- lots of chronic illness and other things that are going on in the community. So we try and encourage them to come in and see us quite regularly, more so than they would. You're also dealing with women who may be speaking English as a third or fourth language because of the different dialects in their communities. So when these women do get to hospital, it can be difficult to communicate. We're just in hospital. We just keep everything simple. It's not dumbing it down. You know, we don't want to make it seem like we're 
um, talking over them or that we're talking to them. We want to be able to communicate with them and, you know, we're using different strategies. We're doing, you know, we're using diagrams and, um, you know, different pictures and actions also, you know, if you're teaching a mum how to breastfeed, you're using a doll and a fake breast and you're actually showing her the actions of it. Cherie says the best part of the job is the journey. Um, I think the best part of my job is knowing that um, just being a part of their journey and I think being a part of, you know, like I'm not really, I'm not a birth midwife. I love working in birth and when I'm there, I absolutely love it. But I love being a part of their journey as well and I love being able to make a difference, you know, even if I've just, if I've said something to a woman or if I've helped them in any way and then that's something that they take away from me and then you know down the track I see women down the street and they say you know sister here's my baby come and have a look at my baby and they're just so happy and I feel like oh you know I was really proud to be a part of that journey. Before we wrap up one last word from Caroline Homer. I guess the only the last thing I'd like to say is that um, every midwife is special around the world, no matter where they work and in what circumstances they work, and that the work they do every day is remarkable. And it's a wonderful thing that we can celebrate International Day of the Midwife. And I wish every midwife out there a very happy International Day of the Midwife. And thank you for the work that you do. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can also tweet us at 2ser. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Leabeater. See you next week for more. <laughs>